This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And this time of year is favorite for a lot of us. You know, we can feel autumn in the air. Days are shorter. The mornings are cooler. We may have days when we wake up, it's still dark out, and there's no way we're moving. We're just staying put. And then someone, if you're a kid, it's mom or dad to get you out of bed for school. Someone comes in, flips on the light switch. Kids, you know what I'm talking about. And what do you do? Well, if you're me, you pull the covers right back over your face to shield yourself from the light. Or if you're camping, imagine it's a beautiful night, it's dark. The only light is the fire crackling and the stars up above. Then your friend turns on their headlamp and looks you right in the face. And it's like getting slapped with the light, right? The total breach of camping etiquette right there. Point your headlamp down. Or maybe it's, it's kind of dark and you want to get a picture, you know, and you're planning on a longer exposure thing, but that setting on your phone, you hit the wrong button and you have that flash that goes off before the flash and everybody's blinded. And then like my family, we all end up with those demon red eyes in the picture. Maybe my favorite story of light causing some intense reaction was the first time Pastor Josh came to visit Cheryl and I when we were working at a camp in eastern Kentucky. We lived 40 minutes outside of a college town, way out in the middle of nowhere. We were at the end of a three-mile-long dead-end road. So Josh drives down from Cincinnati. He gets to camp. He somehow misses our house, which was all lit up, sitting up on a hill, uh, and he keeps driving. Now, shortly after our driveway, the road ends And there's a sign that says, like, the road is ending, end of county maintenance. And it turns into a one-lane gravel path. But Josh just figures, I'm going to keep going. And he keeps going. And after a while of going down this one-lane dirt road to nowhere with no houses, no lights, nothing, he comes around a bend and his headlights land on a severed pig's head right in the middle of the road. And as he as he as he screams, he throws his car into reverse because remember it's a one lane road to nowhere. So he has to back out of where he just came from, all the way backing out like a maniac because he thought he stumbled on some cult meeting. Well, he found his way back to our house. It was not a cult. Our next door neighbor Charlie had had a Labor Day cookout the week before, like a hog roast. And he didn't know what to do with. I guess that's what you do with severed pig heads when you're done, is you just throw them in the woods. But when light encounters darkness, there's often a shock. We are shocked by the light. Bono, the singer of U2, once said in an interview, he says, I'm a musician. I write songs. I just hope when the day is done, I've been able to tear off a little corner of the darkness. So you can go ahead and mark Bono off on your bingo card for this morning. And this quote is actually right here on our pulpit. When Josh is away, he'll often text that to us pastors or whoever's preaching. It's a little riff off of the idea, may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Kind of mashed up with the whole idea of a little, a little leaven spreading through the whole loaf. Tear off a little corner of the darkness. We begin a new sermon series. I'm switching to this one, Mike. This morning we begin a new sermon series called The Sermon on the Plain, Upending the World. You might be thinking, Sermon on the Mount? You mean you misspelled Mount? Uh, well, this one isn't on the Mount. This sermon is on a level place, a plain. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, in the famous passage in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7, you'll recognize some of the content. 
but it's not exactly the same. In fact, there are a good bit of differences. Most likely, this was a separate occasion with a lot of common material. Now, a little secret, this is what a lot of preachers do. They reuse material uh, and they have repeated emphases in their preaching. For example, if you're listening to John Piper, you know you're going to get some riff off of Christian hedonism. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. With Tim Keller, you're going to get the third way, not religion or irreligion, but the gospel, right? And how Jesus is the true and better Adam, the true and better Moses, the true and better David, and so on. With New City, I guess you get Lewis, Tolkien, Bono, and bad jokes. So this is the Sermon on the Plain, and this is where we're going to be for the next several weeks. We're actually dropping back into the Gospel of Luke from about nine or ten months ago. If you can remember back to last Christmas and early in the year, January and February, we walked through the first half a dozen chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and now we're picking back up. So where are we? We're in chapter 6. If you've got your Bible, you can open it up, turn it on over to Luke 6. And immediately before our text for the morning, we have a couple of Sabbath controversies. First, Jesus and his disciples pick some grain as a snack while walking through the grain fields on a Sabbath. And then Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on another Sabbath. Well, these actions were a direct offense to the religious leaders who had all kinds of rules and controls around Sabbath keeping. Look at verse 11. This is where we're at. It says, they, that is the religious leaders, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. What's led up to this is a number of episodes where Jesus is demonstrating his authority and his new administration. The kingdom is inaugurated. Jesus is the new king in this kingdom, and that means a threat to the existing religious system. Jesus has moved from obscurity to popularity, a light in the darkness. One commentator said it this way, the religious leaders viewed him with a more critical eye and began to see strange and indeed dangerous tendencies in what he said and did. To use our series title, Jesus is upending the world. That's where we pick up this morning. But we're not actually getting into the sermon on the plane proper yet. This is really just a setup for what comes next, this sermon that lays out how to live in the kingdom, in the light. It's where we're headed over the next few weeks. Today just sort of sets the scene. But as all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and training and correction and rebuke and all that, I think there's still much to learn in a good preacher form. We'll look at three things. Jesus' prayer habit, the disciples becoming apostles, and the people coming to hear and be healed. So verse 12. Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So if we just run this down, where did he pray? On the mountain. We see regularly throughout the story of Jesus that he withdrew to pray. He would take regular prayer retreats. In this case, he was on the mountain. And I imagine we're supposed to bring to mind all of the other times that folks went up on a mountain to meet with God. Abraham, Moses, Elijah. And then when did he pray? At night, all night. In her book, Prayer in the Night, Tish Harrison Warren writes about how Christians throughout the ages have followed Jesus' footsteps in that regard. That in a darkness so complete that it's hard for us to now imagine with our electricity, Christians rose from their beds and prayed vigils in the night. The third century North African theologian Tertullian refers to assemblies at night in which families would rise from their sleep to pray together. 
In the East, Basil the Great instructed Christians that at the beginning of the night, we ask that our rest be without offense, and that this hour also Psalm 91 must be recited. Long after night vigil ceased to be a regular practice among families, monks continued to pray through the small hours, rising in the middle of the night to sing psalms together, staving off the threat of darkness. Centuries of Christians have faced their fears of unknown dangers and confessed their own vulnerability each night. So if you find yourself sleepless, restless, scared of the dark, whether that's because you're up nursing a child or you're so stressed you can't stop the whirlwind in your mind when you lay down to sleep, you have a companion in the night. Well, why did Jesus pray? Well, this was the eve of a big decision, and ostensibly it's because he had this big decision to make. His influence is growing. He's got some real opposition now. His kingdom has been inaugurated, and we're on the eve of his choosing his 12 apostles, which we'll get to in a minute. This was a big moment, a big decision. How did Jesus prepare for the big decision? He withdrew by himself to pray. What did he pray? How did he pray? We actually don't really know. We have no record of the words or the content of Jesus' prayer in this case. But I can only assume, based on his prayer from the Garden of Gethsemane, that he prayed something like, not my will, but yours be done. He opened his heart and his mind, the Father laying out his plan, maybe, listening for direction, submitting himself to whatever the Father would have for him. All right, so what? What does this mean for us? Well, pray, duh, right? That's the easy application. Pray about decisions. Make pros and cons lists for sure. Talk it out with trusted mentors and so on. But do pray. Talk to God. Invite him into it. You know, so often, I think we make our plans. We run scenarios in our mind. We have conversations with friends. We strategize. We dream and we scheme. And, and in the end, we present our brilliant plan to God and say, this is what I'm doing. Bless this. But rather, what if we prayed like the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's anything in me that is crooked and bent and lead me in the way of life everlasting. And I like the way Pastor Rich Viotis paraphrases this prayer. He says we ought to pray, Lord, show me me. Show me me. We can always stand firm on Jesus' prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Or... This is kind of my riff off of C.S. Lewis riffing off of Jesus. He says, there are two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, and those to whom God says, fine, have it your way. We say to God, thy will be done, or God says, fine, have it your way. So pray, pray at night, pray whenever, pray in the morning, pray prayers, submitting your will to the Lord, maybe especially if you're on the verge of a big moment or a big decision, pray as Jesus prayed. And then in verses 13 through 16, Jesus chooses his 12, the apostles. Verses 13 through 16, you know, it says, When the day came, so he prayed all night. When the day came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And I won't read them all. We heard their names, some names you recognize, like Peter and Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Judas, of course. Everyone knows Judas. But others... Names we just don't recognize at all. I love what one commentator said. He said, Jesus never set up an organization. These 12 represent his administration machinery. On the whole, they seem to have been no more than average. Most have left very little mark on church history. Jesus preferred to work, then as now, through perfectly ordinary people. Although these 12 were the extent of Jesus' administrative machinery, it would not have been lost on the folks 
at the time that what Jesus was doing here when he was choosing 12 people. Right, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, so 12 apostles. This is Jesus establishing a new Israel, a new community, a new kingdom, a new administration. Things had gone sideways over and over again with the people of God. Jesus' kingdom is a reestablishment of Israel, a new human community with 12. Right, if we look ahead to the end, a vision of the kingdom coming in its fullness. Look at Revelation chapter 21. You can turn there if you want or just listen. Listen to this, it says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see what Jesus is doing here in New Israel, the foundation of the church on these 12 apostles. The 12 names of the 12 apostles written on the foundations of the walls of the New Jerusalem. So these 12 are pretty important. What Jesus means by them is really spectacular. But what's the difference in there between a, a disciple and an apostle? We see both those words here. They were just disciples the day before, and now they're apostles. Well, disciple is a word that just means learner or student. But more than like a student in a class, a disciple would, a disciple would have followed their teacher. So think less like a student in geometry class for one hour a day, five days a week, and more like a deadhead following around the Grateful Dead. And a follower of disciple is actually a, a pretty good expansion of the word disciple, somebody who follows Jesus around. And we see this in this passage that there are a lot of disciples. Down in verse 17, we read that there was a great crowd of them. Apostle is a different word that means sent one. Maybe a modern example is something like power of attorney, which authorizes a person to be the representative, right, to act on behalf of a person doing the sending, sign legal documents, and so on. Or another example might be an ambassador, right? Someone is appointed as an ambassador. They have the authority to sign a treaty for their country. The apostles were the first leaders anointed and sent by Jesus to establish the church. Disciples are anyone and everyone in every age who follow Jesus. There can be innumerable disciples, only 12 apostles, plus the apostle Paul, but that's, we won't get into that this morning. But so what? Well, what we see here is the power of ordinary old people in community on mission. As Walter Wood, our planting church's pastor, would say, we come to faith and grow in faith through multiple exposures to God's word and God's people. These were ordinary men called by God to be his ambassadors, to be with God's people, to lead this new community. And though we're not apostles, this is still our task today, to be in community with one another, to let the world know we are Christians by our love for one another. This expresses itself in the ways that we gather together here. Southern Sunday morning worship, for sure, but community groups, Bible studies, meals together, happy hours, gathering with neighbors, friends, church folks around fire pits or wherever. Wherever and wherever we are being spurred on towards love and good deeds, as the book of Hebrews puts it. Regular exposures to God's word and God's people. And although we aren't apostles, we can't be apostles, we are ambassadors. 
We aren't apostles, but we're called into the apostolic task. We can't be apostles, but you better believe that we are to live as sent ones. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As I'm sure we all know, Queen Elizabeth died this week. She was coronated when, I heard this week, she was coronated when Winston Churchill was prime minister. And apparently he was born in 1874. One of her last acts of her reign was to greet the new prime minister who was born in 1974. What a span there. And Josh sent me this from the myriad of remembrances on Twitter this week. This guy said, C.S. Lewis said this about Queen Elizabeth's coronation. The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice-regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. Us, called by God to be his vice-regent and his high priest on earth, like Queen Elizabeth, right? I certainly feel inadequate to the task of being Christ's ambassador, But that's us. That's how it works. As Leon Morris said, and I quoted earlier, Jesus preferred to work then as now through perfectly ordinary people. There's transformative power in our ordinary friendships with one another. Whatever we do, writing songs like Bono doing Excel spreadsheets or meeting in community groups, we want to tear off a little corner of the darkness. That's our task. And then thirdly, we see that people were coming to be healed and to hear Jesus. Verse 17 and 18, he came down with them and stood on a level place. That's where we get the Sermon on the Plain. I heard one author calling it the Sermon on the Level, which is kind of clever, I thought. So who do we have here? Well, the the gathering is not just the 12 apostles. There was a great crowd of disciples, plus a great multitude of people from all over, which would have almost certainly included Gentiles. We're talking about a pretty massive crowd of people. A few chapters later, Luke tells the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And even here, we're talking about a lot of people, almost certainly more than we'll gather here this morning in both of our worship services. So why did all these people show up? We're told it was to hear him and to be healed. To hear Jesus and to be healed. The Gospels all talk about how people were attracted to Jesus because he taught with authority. There was something about his message that had a weight to it that was authentic. To use a trendy word, we'd say his teaching resonated with the people. This was part of the threat of the religious leaders felt from this. Jesus' teaching was authoritative. It was trumping their authority. What happens when a higher authority comes and overrules? You know, maybe you've had this experience at work or in a group or something. You make a decision. You think it's a pretty good one someone with a higher pay grade, more authority than you, comes and casts your decision and your plan to the side. How does that make you feel? 
ashamed, weak, devalued, stupid, probably angry, which turns into vengeance. You know, people were flocking to see Jesus. They were walking away from the established religious industrial complex, and they were following this new guy, the one with real authority. And that made the religious establishment spitting mad. There was a buzz. People wanted to see what was going on. Some came out of curiosity. As you can imagine, something big's going on. Let's go see that. Some came for the authoritative teaching. They'd heard Jesus, and they wanted to hear what he had to say. Others, we see, came out of desperation to be healed. It's kind of amazing to read the Gospels and to read about the sheer number of folks who were physically suffering who were attracted to Jesus. People who were paralyzed. Folks who were possessed by demons, had all kinds of different disabilities. The woman who had hemorrhaging that had lasted for years. Lepers who were untouchable and completely socially isolated. Everywhere Jesus went, folks who were suffering from physical ailments followed. Why? Look at verse 19. They sought to touch him because when they touched Jesus, or when he touched them, they were cured, healed of whatever was ailing them. Jesus was a healer. Now regarding the healing, why did Jesus heal people? Well, his healing was meant as a demonstration, a manifestation, a proof of his authority. If we flip back to a few pages to one page to Luke 5, we read the story of the paralyzed man whose buddies clear a hole in the roof and they lower him down. Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Insert the audible gasp from the folks that were there, the religious folks. And anybody else is probably like, yeah, that's awesome about the forgiveness of sins thing, but like he's still paralyzed. Jesus turns to them all and he says, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And here's the kicker. This is the explanation. This is why Jesus had a ministry of healing. He says that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Spoiler alert, Jesus heals the man and he gets up and walks. Why? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. Jesus' healings were a sign of his authority to forgive sins. It validated and proved that his teaching was authentic and could be trusted. What eventually happened to all the people that Jesus healed in the Gospels? They all died. As the Onion reported, world death rate holding steady at 100%. So the physical cure was temporary, right? That doesn't make it any less significant for their life. But eventually they die. These folks' lives were dramatically changed in the moment and restored. But the healing isn't ultimately the point. Jesus' authority to reign as king in this new kingdom is the point. For further study on this, I recommend the beautiful book Miracle Man by John Hendricks. I believe it's what they call a children's book. Uh, but I would recommend it for everyone. It's beautiful, it's fun, and it gets at the heart of all of this matter of Jesus as a healer, a miracle man. But back to verse 19, the crowd sought to touch him. Why? Because when they did, the power went out of him. They sought to touch him. Listen to one of my favorites who actually just died recently, actually Frederick Biegner. He says, I hear your words, I see your face, I smell the rain in your hair, the coffee on your breath. I'm inside me experiencing 
you as you are inside you experiencing me, but the you and the I themselves, those two insiders don't entirely meet until something else happens. We shake hands, perhaps. We pat each other on the back. At parting or greeting, we may even go so far as to give each other a hug. And now it has happened. We discover each other to be three-dimensional, solid creatures of reality, as well as dimensionless, airy creators of it. We have an outside of flesh and bone, as well as an inside, where we live and move and have our being. Through simply touching, more directly than in any other way, we can transmit to each other something of the power of the life we have inside us. It's no wonder that the laying on of hands has always been a traditional part of healing, or that when Jesus was around, all the crowd sought to touch him. It's no wonder that just the touch of another human being at a dark time can be enough to save the day. Imagine being unclean, leper, untouchable, isolated, lonely, alone, no one ever coming anywhere near you. Then you hear about a miracle man who, if you could just touch him, if you could even just touch the hem of his garment, everything would change. People coming from all over, they sought to touch him. The crowds came to hear and be healed. So what? What does this have to do with us? Well, we and folks around us are dying. And we come around for these same reasons, don't we? We want to hear Jesus. That's why here in the city we open the scriptures each week, preaching, yes, but singing the scriptures and calling to worship with the scriptures and praying the scriptures and reading the scripture out loud together. We want to hear Jesus. And we want to be healed. We want comfort for our pain. We want peace in the midst of the chaos of our lives. We want freedom from the hurts of our past. We want more than to know in our heads. We want an experience with the divine. Now I got to go to Miami University and I would often go out of my way to walk through the Upham Arch just so that I could walk under the words of John 8, 32 that were engraved there. The verse goes like this, ye shall know the truth. And that's it. Now, if you know the verse, that's not it, right? It says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Knowledge of the truth is important, right? Know the truth, absolutely. Come and hear. But the truth does something, right? Be healed as well. Not necessarily of your physical ailment, maybe. God can do whatever he wants to do, but experience the freedom of the kingdom. As Paul said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It wasn't just knowing the truth, right? It was the setting free. That's what Jesus was up to. That's why he got in trouble with the religious folks. Know the truth, be set free. Hear and be healed. You know, may our community be one in which we seek to touch Jesus, to hear, to be healed, to know the truth and to be set free so that each and every time we gather and even when we're scattered as God's ambassadors throughout the week, that we're pulling together to tear off a little corner of the darkness. That's the work we're called to do, and mercifully, that's the work God is doing in us as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are king and Lord over all. You reign and rule over all of our ailments, over all of our blessings and successes, over our hurts and our failures. We confess that we tend to grab the controls, making plans, pretending that we know what's best, telling you what we're going to do, and then asking you to bless it rather than pausing to pray, to submit our will to yours, saying and believing, not my will, 
that yours be done. Have mercy on us, O God. And as we gather together, even this morning, to hear you, to feast your table, we ask that you would heal us and set us free by your grace. Do more than we can ask or imagine. Let your kingdom be coming through our work here, through us ordinary folks. Empower and equip us by your spirit for the task of being your ambassadors, your vice regents here on earth, even though we all too often feel inadequate. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.